0: This is a familiar passage. This is the triumphal entry. This is what took place on Palm Sunday. This is the end of the three years of Jesus's ministry when he rode into Jerusalem for that final Passover. Along the way, if you read through the the Gospels, Jesus has been gathering followers around him. He had been very popular at one point, and then that popularity dropped real low. But on the way back, everybody on this pilgrimage, on their way to the feast, began to attach themselves to him. And by the time he arrives, there's this great crowd of people. His fame has spread. John 12 tells us that on this day, one of the reasons he got so much attention was everybody had heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. And so they wanted to come and see this guy. Because this was the week of Passover, every Israelite male would have been in this city, or at least as many as were observant and obedient. Millions of people jam-packed into this city. And Jesus prepares for his entry by sending the disciples to come back with a donkey's colt. When Jesus did this, he is deliberately, intentionally, on purpose, fulfilling a prophecy, I'm going to ride into this village or to this city from this village. Go bring me a donkey's colt. He's doing this on purpose. And Matthew and the others say this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This was the prophet Zechariah. I'm going to read a longer section of that passage that uh, is quoted there in Matthew 21. This is Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 through 11. As you write that down, I will tell you, there are certain books of the Bible that are indispensable when it comes to studying last day's prophecy. Revelation is an obvious one. Daniel is in there. First and Second Thessalonians. Zechariah is also very high on that list, as is Matthew, by the way. But this is what a longer section of that passage says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. We continue. What is this king going to bring? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Zechariah prophesied to the people that had just come back from exile. Your king is coming. He's going to be mounted on a donkey, humble and lowly with salvation, we know that part. But his, his prophecy continues that he is going to be a king that is going to rule from sea to sea, we might say from sea to shining sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, and he will set your prisoners free. And you won't need to fight any more wars, your enemies will be defeated. So Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is in direct fulfillment of that passage. It was not just a prophecy of salvation, It was prophecy of political national deliverance, victory over their enemies. And who was occupying Israel at this time? Rome, the Romans. They had built a fortress at the corner of the temple so that they could look down and double check what was going on. They marched through the streets. You're there for, imagine for Passover, you're remembering the days, you're telling your children the story of the Exodus. And then down the road, you hear and there's these men with these feathered helmets and these bright scarlet robes and carrying shields that have graven images on them. And you lean over to your son maybe and say, these are the Egyptians of today. It was Egypt before and it's Rome now. And they're all together in this remembrance of when God delivered us from a previous oppression. But now we're still oppressed. But you know, the Bible says one day God is going to send the king and he's going to set us all free. And then here comes Jesus mounted on a donkey into Jerusalem. Your mind would immediately begin to connect these things together, wouldn't they? They spread their cloaks on the road, and they begin to wave, it's, as it clarifies, I believe in John, palm branches. Now, that's nice, Palm Sunday, wave palm branches, but we need to remember this. We've talked about it before. The palm branch was a nationalist symbol of Israel. It was a symbol of the Maccabean revolt. The Maccabees were priests that had rebelled against Greece. They had gotten rid of Greece, and Israel ruled themselves for 75 years. That's where the story of Hanukkah comes from and all of that, before Rome came in. So they begin to wave these palm branches, which is not just a nice thing. This is where saying, last time we had a guy like this, we kicked out the oppressor, and we're about to do it again. It's like when we walk around waving the yellow flag, don't tread on me, or we've got the three-cornered hats. It's patriotism. It's looking back to the last revolution. So them waving these palm branches is not just a nice thing. It's a call for revolution. Here's the guy that's going to get these Romans out of here. And they start to sing Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118. I'll read verses 25 and 26 of that chapter. You need to pay attention to all of it, but I'll just read a piece. Hosanna means, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So Psalm 118 is also a prophecy of the coming Messiah, King, Deliverer. So them saying, blessed is he, the son of David. The son of David was the man who would restore Israel's dynasty. So we've got the king coming on a donkey who will establish rule from sea to shining sea, get rid of our oppressors and set up the Davidic kingdom again. Do you now see why the Pharisees got so freaked out and told Jesus to shut up his disciples? They were offended personally at the thought that anybody would claim equality with God. But we know from the meeting that the Sanhedrin would have this week, they're like, if we let this guy keep going, Rome is gonna crack down. If they see us, Chanting and marching in the streets, waving, as it were, the flag in the air and calling for revolution. We got to kill Jesus. Caiaphas said, better he die than we all die when Rome comes in. This was an open declaration of Jesus as Christ, the first time Jesus permitted an open declaration of who he was. Zechariah, in that chapter, it says that God would wield Israel like a warrior's sword. Can you imagine the the young men in that crowd? Oh, I want to be part of that prophecy. It says the weakest among you is going to fight like David on that day. Like, yeah, all right. They were expecting a king. And here's the thing that I just hope I laid out to you. They were not wrong to expect him to be their king. Was Jesus their king? Yeah. Was he the son of David? You bet. They were ready for their king and he was their king. This was their day of salvation. The day that would inaugurate the kingdom as Daniel had prophesied. We've hit on Daniel 9 a couple times already because you got to know this. If If you study this in depth and you learn it, I don't know how you can come to any other eschatological conclusion, but let me read this. This is a prophecy that was given to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. I'm going to use the word week here, like 70 weeks. But the word for week in Hebrew is seven, sevens. So we understand these weeks not to be days, but to be weeks of years. Are you tracking with me here? So a week is a seven, a set of seven years. All right, Daniel was told in Daniel nine, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So 70 times seven is what? 490 weeks of years. So 490 years. So much for prophecies not being specific, huh? Are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. To, in a sense, to finish everything God had promised for them. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, that was Emperor Cyrus, who was the Persian emperor. From that day until the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So seven weeks plus 62 weeks. These are weeks of years now, 483 years until a prince comes in a troubled time to your city after it's been built again. When Jesus came, circa 30 A.D. This was the 483rd year since Cyrus's decree. All that remained, according to Daniel's prophecy, was a week, seven years, of war. Israel should have received Jesus at this moment, hailed him as king, worshipped him as God, allowed him to take his place on the throne as the son of David, and if they had, all of history would have been different. But what do we see Jesus doing on this glorious, happy, triumphant day? He's weeping. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, the same scene from a different book. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, now remember, on the donkey, the prophetic donkey, surrounded by his disciples, throwing their cloaks on the ground, this great crowd that has come with him, waving the palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, they come around and he sees the city and all the people coming out to meet him. And he wept over it, saying, I would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Everything that Daniel prophesied could have happened today. But now they're hidden for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why is Jesus weeping at what could be seen as the pinnacle of his ministry? You say, wait a minute. They're saying Hosanna, they're calling his name, they're welcoming him as king. Why is Jesus saying these things are gonna be hidden? Because you all know what happened that week, don't you? Jesus goes into the temple and flips over the tables and then all the leaders get together and decide we're gonna bring this guy down. We're gonna, quite literally, we're gonna cancel Jesus. We're gonna get him to say something he can't defend and then everybody's gonna hate him. And Jesus makes them all look silly And then he gives this sermon blasting these leaders. And then you get into Thursday night when Judas goes to them and says, how much money do you want me to deliver Jesus over into your hands? And while on Sunday they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. On Friday, what were they crying in front of Pontius Pilate's house? Crucify. Remember when it said earlier in the Gospels that Jesus did not commit himself to every disciple because he knew the heart of every man? Same thing here. Oh, they're shouting and celebrating and calling for me to be king. I know what's up. They're not interested in the salvation of those Romans, which was Jesus' ministry. They're not interested in the salvation of the Ethiopians or the barbarians or the people on the other side of the world that they don't even know exist. They just want a political king. And so... When Jesus did not seem to be too interested in their revolution, they cried, crucify. They rejected Messiah. All their hopes, all their plans, all their prayers, every year of sitting down and eating the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread was all smashed into pieces because when their day of visitation came, when Messiah arrived, they said, no, John 19, verses 14 through 15, Jesus has been flogged and beaten and mocked, and it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and Pontius Pilate said to the Jews, with Jesus, imagine him there, with the crown of thorns and the bloodied body, bruised, his beard pulled out, and he says, behold your king. Pontius Pilate is even speaking unwitting prophecy in this moment. And they cried out, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, and can't you just hear the Holy Spirit pleading through this man? Shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar. We will rule ourselves, thank you very much. And the one that they had been sent to deliver them from all oppression, they said, we'd rather be oppressed than follow him. God's city on a hill, Israel. His light to the Gentiles. His nation of priests rejected all of that when the moment came. Romans 10, verse 3, Paul explains, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They they knew good and well who he was because he was heralded and announced as such, just as prophesied. But when they heard a little bit that week about his righteousness, they refused to submit to it. There are some grievous sins in the history of Israel. The golden calf, when the Moses is up receiving the law and they built a golden cow and begin to worship in this orgiastic frenzy, God forgave that. The sins of the judges. I mean, read the book of Judges. You don't even hardly want your kids reading that book. What about the sin of Jeroboam? What's better than one golden calf? Two golden calves. And Jeroboam, from that time forward, is called Jeroboam who led the people of Israel to sin All of those things pale next to the crucifixion of Jesus. God came to the earth in human flesh and they nailed him to a tree. And they left him there to die. What now? What about all those things that Zechariah had prophesied? Everything that Moses and Ezekiel and everyone was looking forward to. I wonder if the angels were thinking, this can't be right. This was It's not how it was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Well, here's the deal. God's plans are not going to be thwarted by anybody. If God purposes to do something, no one can stop him. Not even his own people. There needed to be a sacrifice offered for sin. That's why Jesus came. Isaiah 53, right? And he was. Yet it was at the hands of his very own people. And God after the resurrection and all of the glory and the joy of that, moved on with the plan of salvation. And the gospel has gone to the world. I mean, here we are. They didn't even know there was a place called Alabama back when those prophecies were given. But God knew. To the ends of the earth. But God chose to do that without Israel. Everything I said I would use you to do to reach the whole world, I will now do without you. Three ways that Israel was judged by the Lord on this day. Number one is through the salvation to and through the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations, the ones that had oppressed and beaten them down and invaded them on every side that didn't keep the food laws and didn't know the Torah and didn't even know who Moses was. And God goes, I'm going to use them to bring my salvation to the world. I'm going to use them to make my name famous to every corner of the globe. You read the book of Acts. The first persecutors of the church and haters of the gospel were not Romans. They were Jews, Israelites. Contrasted with the welcome reception of the Gentiles. Roman, like proud Romans. Like uh, I'm not interested in going after some other weird culture. Proud of Rome. I'm proud of the empire. I fought for this empire. I'm proud to be a Roman. And they received the gospel. And they sent out missionaries. And they died for the truth of the gospel. Even today, the church is mostly Gentiles. It is largely people outside of God's chosen nation who share in and carry the joy of God's Messiah. Isn't that ironic? I mean, most of us are not Jewish, and yet we use words like hallelujah, which is Hebrew for praise the Lord. Hallel Yah, like Yahweh. We use words like Messiah, Mashiach, which means promised one, anointed one. We name our kids things like Samuel and Isaac and Jacob. Shouldn't we be naming, at least in my case, things like George and William? Like that's, that's our culture, right? But that, that truth has gone from them to the world, and the Gentiles now carry the truth of Messiah. Everything God said I was going to do through you, I'm now doing without you. Number two, the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only was Israel's privilege as emissary and priest for the world taken away for a time, but the land of Israel itself was ravaged. Forty years after this, isn't that significant? So for those that want to claim these numbers are just symbolic, that's not even in the text of scripture, but it was 40 years later that in A.D. 70, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. They sacked the city. They laid the city waste. They burned the temple and scraped off the gold and knocked all the stones down and ravaged the women and murdered the children and scattered them around the world for almost 2,000 years. The Jews were living just about everywhere but the land of Israel. Until 1948, of course. Isn't it amazing that if you read the Old Testament, so much of it is the prophets warning Israel and saying, you've got to stop this idolatry. God's going to judge you. He's going to exile you. He's going to send you to Babylon. And when one king would repent, God would go, okay, fine, I'll delay that. Over and over again, Hezekiah, Josiah, Manasseh, it was delayed, delayed, delayed. And then finally God goes, I would have delayed longer if you had just prayed. Centuries. But they rejected Jesus, 40 years, done. Shows the grievousness of that sin, doesn't it? The Lord said in Deuteronomy, if you reject me, if you sin against me, I will scatter you to the winds. I won't let you be in my land if you're not going to serve me. 40 years and Jerusalem was destroyed. And number three, blindness to the Jews. You know, it's really tragic that the people who, the names that we look to for those that have heralded the gospel are not Hebrew names for the most part. That's tragic. The destruction of Jerusalem, and it's even sickening to think about what happened on that day. But the worst of all is that Israel has been judged with spiritual blindness. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about how God hardened the hearts of Israel just like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Isn't that ironic? The Lord says, do you think that you are exempt? That you can do whatever you want and reject my people? I have hardened your heart. So that only a chosen remnant is today saved from among their ranks. The Lord says there will never be a national revival of religion serving the Lord Jesus Christ in Israel until I say so. It's horrific to think about, isn't it? It's sobering. You can feel it in the room, can't you? Can God do that? Oh, yes, he can. Remember Romans 9, Paul says, Who are you to come to God and tell him what he can and cannot do? And to sum it up, Romans eleven twenty-five. 25, Paul said, Lest you be wise in your own sight. And I like that. Like, I don't care what your weird theories are about the Jews, all right? Let me tell you what's really going on. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Partial hardening. Jews still get saved, of course, but we're not going to see this overwhelming return as in the days of Josiah, for example, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The Lord is doing His work of salvation apart from Israel, without a kingdom, and by blinding their hearts. They missed it. And we can look and say, did anybody see this coming? Well, the thing is, if you look at the Old Testament and you read carefully, the Lord knew that it was coming. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, to keep reading that passage I was reading before, we read how after 69 weeks, there will come a king. And that's a great place to stop. It's a great sermon you know, ending. right? The king will come, but there's another week. What did Daniel continue to say? He said, after those 62, and that's 62 plus seven, so this is after 483 years, the anointed one shall be cut off. And have nothing. An anointed one, you know what that Hebrew word is. That's the word Messiah. And the people of the prince, different prince, not the anointed one, this is the bad anti-prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So Daniel prophesied that this time clock will move up till 483 years, 69 weeks, 69 sevens. But then he says, and then something will go terribly, terribly wrong. The anointed one will be killed. The city will be destroyed. The sanctuary will be ravaged. There will be people that will come in and make war against Israel until the end. Desolations are decreed. Isn't that exactly what has happened? We went 483 years, and then the Messiah was cut off. The city was destroyed, and the sanctuary was broken into pieces. And has not Israel and the Jews been ravaged by just about every nation in the world since that day, even by our own, to our great shame? Even now, they're in their land, but I mean, barely, right? They're holding on, but it just it, you would not be surprised in the least to check your phone and find out these 10 countries have all declared war against Israel and who knows if they'll be able to last. Even on college campuses, people march against the oppression of the Jews against the Palestinian people and cheering for suicide bombers. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard over there. They have to fight tooth and nail to keep that little hold on the land that they have as Daniel prophesied. Meanwhile, the Gentile church has just thrived The Gentile church, I mean, the gospel has just gone into cultures and transformed them, hasn't it? We can't even really talk about our own without the gospel. The God of Israel is worshipped around the world by multitudes of Gentiles, as Daniel prophesied. Here's another passage from the Old Testament, Hosea chapter three, verses three through five. Now, Hosea is an odd book because Hosea has this unfaithful wife who very well could have been a prostitute when he married her. It's unclear if this was her profession or just her disposition, but he calls her a woman of harlotry. And she steps out on him for so long, she ends up getting sold into slavery. And Hosea buys her back in Hosea chapter three. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. But when they get home from the slave market, Things are not all hunky-dory. Verses three through five of that chapter, Hosea says, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man and so will I also be to you. What does that mean? And we can confirm this from some of these other passages in Hosea. He's saying, we are not going to come together until things have cooled down and sorted out a little bit. You must dwell as mine. You are mine. I've bought you I've redeemed you from the slave market, but you must dwell as mine for many days. He says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king, without a prince, without sacrifice, without pillar, without ephod or household gods. Then afterward, after the long desolation, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And who's the son of David? Easy one. Jesus, not a trick question. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Israel is compared by Hosea to an unfaithful wife in a loveless marriage. Redeemed. Jesus Christ has paid the price to redeem them. But there's no joy. There's no consummation of that relationship. So in a sense, Daniel's prophetic clock has been paused as Hosea foretold, and as Daniel himself foretold. He says, In the latter days they shall return and rejoice and seek Jesus, but have they done that? No. So we are living in the days, he says, the many days with no king, no sacrifice, no temple. The desolation. The priest, that is the nation of Israel, was offered the sacrifice, and they said no. Actually, in a sense, They did offer the sacrifice, even though they didn't realize they were doing it, did they? Here's one more thing that Jesus said on that day. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing See, hear this now, see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Daniel said, after the Messiah has been cut off, what did he say? Desolations have been decreed. Hosea said, after the redemption, but before their repentance, there will be many years where they have nothing, where they're desolate. And in Matthew 23, on Palm Sunday, Jesus announced it. Your house is left to you desolate. Which is why the title of our message is, The Desolation of Israel. It is the age in which we are living right now. And Jesus said, it will continue until you can shout Hosanna and mean it this time. You ever tell your kid, apologize to your brother? Sorry. No, apologize again. I said sorry. Yeah, but you didn't mean it. I said Hosanna, blessed is he. Yeah, but then a couple days later you said Crucify. We have no king but Caesar. So until you can do this again and get it right, not out of a desire for political gain or ethnic pride, but out of love and sincere repentance, your desolation shall continue. Many days, Hosea said. But let me ask you this question. What are the odds of that? Think about everything you know about Israel and Judaism and the Jewish people. What would it take for Israel to turn to Jesus for salvation today? I'm talking about right now. What would it take for the prime minister of Israel to stand up and say, as of right now, we are no longer a Jewish nation. We are a Christian nation, and everybody is to call on the name of Jesus today. What are the odds of that happening? Or consider all, there are more Jews you know, living in New York City than living just about anywhere else. If they all came together and held a rally in Yankee Stadium and said, we as Jews now officially declare ourselves to be messianic believers in Jesus Christ. I think everyone's jaw would collectively drop if that happened, right? So what are the odds of that? Well, let me tell you again. God will not be thwarted in the end. I got this idea, actually, believe it or not, I got this from John Milton in Paradise Lost. When they're talking about how Satan is, gonna, is tempting Eve and Adam and the son. It's a, it's a poem, you know, it's not scripture. But he, Jesus says to his father, he says, basically I'm going to say it in like today's English. He says, are we going to let Satan ruin everything that we just made? You know, you, we ought to judge the world for this sin. But are we going to let him get away with this? And the answer is, of course not. But it costs Jesus, everything. In the same way, is God going to let Satan get in there and tear away his chosen people and stick his finger in the Lord's face right before he's cast into hell and say, yes, you beat me. Yes, you saved the world, but I got Israel. Remember that for all of eternity. You think God's going to let that happen? Do you really think that? No way. God will not be bested by the devil. Now, some people try to get around this. Of course not, because when it says Israel, it means the church. To which I say, does it say that? You will not find that verse in the Bible, I promise you. The Bible never replaces them. In fact, Paul in Romans 11, verses 1 and 2 says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. It's Greek, megenoita. It means may it never be. What are you, nuts? Nuts? Well, uh, Paul, I, imagine if Paul was alive today and like went to a seminary. So how is, how is things going? Well, as you know, uh, God has replaced uh, Israel with the church. What are you, nuts? You got that from my writings? He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's talking strongly there, isn't he? And by calling attention to his own descent... He's talking about physical, genetic, blood-relative Israel. Not the Gentile church. What about the Old Testament? Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. I don't see how you can read that, God's forever everlasting covenant, and say, but of course, uh, they broke the covenant, so that's done now. So much for everlasting, right? No, he says he keeps covenant for a thousand generations. Jeremiah 33, and Pastor Troy already read this one. If God is gonna keep his covenant with the sun and the moon and the stars, he will keep his covenant with Israel and therefore his new covenant with us as well. Amen. But you got to admit, all right, Lord, I know what you said, but it's going to take some doing. I mean, you see the centuries after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish religion was essentially redefined to oppose and reject Jesus Christ. Well, what's God going to have to do? He's going to apply the pressure in the last days. He's going to drive them to repentance. We're continuing with Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So the first couple of verses, 69 weeks. The building of the, of the city, the decree to rebuild the city. The Messiah will be cut off. You will be without king and temple for years. And the, the people will ravage you and make you desolate. But then verse 27 And the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Why do we believe the tribulation is seven years? It says it right there and elsewhere. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. He says that last week, That last seven years is going to be the worst seven years Israel's ever known. They're going to have a covenant made. Imagine some guy that could work out a peace treaty with Israel and Palestine. The world would bow at that guy's feet, wouldn't they? But he says after three and a half years, he's going to break that treaty. Can you see, by the way, how the seven and the three and a half and the halfway point is is echoed throughout the whole Bible over and over again? Halfway through, that Antichrist, that prince, is going to break that treaty and ravage Jerusalem again and make it desolate again and commit an abomination that causes more desolation. He's called the desolator. It's going to get worse, worse, worse. That last week is war, terror, pestilence, death. It's the time, Jeremiah 30 says, of Jacob's trouble. Remember in the book of Genesis when Joseph and Simeon and Benjamin were taken from Jacob and he says, all these things are against me. Remember that? Jacob, you have not seen trouble yet. Trouble is going to be when your people are being systematically executed and slaughtered around the world. That's why we call it, or why John calls it, the great tribulation. I always kind of chuckle at that whenever you watch, you know... The NBA playoffs are going right now, and, you know, they, they win the series, and it's like, oh, how did you win? What, was, what has it been like for you? You know, we, we just had a lot of trials and tribulations this year, and it's like, what, you lost a few games, man? <laughs> you, had, you had a knee soreness thing for a while? Great tribulation. We've already discussed, we do not believe the church will be present during that time. Try your best to find the church in Revelation 6-19. through 19. But prominent in our reasoning for that is because this is Israel's last week. It's their last seven. In the middle, the Lord has made them desolate while he does his business with the church. And Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When God's done with the mission that we're on right now, we believe there will be a rapture and he will turn his attention to that unfaithful wife in a loveless marriage. And will allow that seven years of great tribulation. They will be under the boot of a tyrant called the Antichrist. Persecutor, oppressor, desolator. And the Bible talks about at the end of those seven years, he marches on Jerusalem. We will put a final end to these people and their God. Intent on its final destruction. And that is the day when God will lift the blindness from Israel. Remember, he's a partial hardening, a blindness upon the people. And God says, that's the day when the seven years are over and the desolator marches on your capital city, ready to make an end of you. The whole world that is back, you against all Gentiles, I will lift that and you'll call out to me. Zechariah promises this. Zechariah, I'll read verse 12, 10, and then 13, verse 1. Describing that same scene where Jerusalem is surrounded God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah wrote that well before Jesus was crucified. When they look on the one whom they pierced, who God personally identifies himself with, that can only be Jesus. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, 13 verse 1, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So for 69 weeks, it built up to Jesus coming. They rejected Jesus. And as Hosea and Daniel prophesied many days of desolation until that last week, until God is done with those Gentiles and there's seven more years of increasing desolation until he's standing literally at the gates of the city ready to invade. And then Zechariah says, then... Then I will pour out a spirit of grace, mercy, and repentance upon my people. The scales like Paul will fall from their eyes. And it says they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will recognize we killed the Messiah. We need him right now and we rejected him. If we ever needed our king to come and give us victory, it's now, look, the enemy's at the gates. But we didn't, we killed him. We said we'd rather have Caesar, and now Caesar's at the door, and he's ready to take our heads. And they will weep, they will mourn, they'll say, how could we have done this? Lord, we're so sorry. But God, Hosanna, save us now. We need salvation right now. We recognize that you came in the name of the Lord. And that's when Revelation 19 says, then the heavens opened and there was Jesus on a white horse in a robe splattered with blood, faithful and true. And he marches with a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. And it says he will kill the Antichrist with the sword of his mouth. All he's got to do is say, enough with you. And then will come all the promises of victory and deliverance as Jesus swoops down to put an end to his reign. And he finally takes the throne in Jerusalem and all the nations will come to him and he'll restore the world for a thousand years. Israel's boundaries will be full. The land will be healed and the world will serve him in righteousness Psalm 118 verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That excite anybody else? That's what's going to happen at the end. That's what's going to happen. Jesus knew all that as he rode into Jerusalem. He knew they were calling his name now, but he wept because he says, I want to bring you together. I want to gather you like a hen and I will, but I know what it's going to cost. Not only my life and my blood poured out outside the camp like some unclean thing, but thousands of years of your desolation and then an increased pain for a whole week of years and then the worst man the world has ever known ready to chop you into little pieces and then you'll finally call on me. But as Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame If this means, as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, then Lord, I will go to the cross. I'll pay the price. I will allow my truth to be placed into the hands of unworthy, unclean Gentiles for 2,000 plus years. If that means my people can be saved. So today, I wanted to give us a little bit of perspective here. Because we live in what we call the age of grace. The dispensation of grace, it's called in eschatological terms. Yes, because grace has gone throughout the whole world, even to Israel. There are Jews that are still saved. There's a remnant. But this is also what the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. God's time working with the nations like America and England and China and Brazil and Uganda. Nations that the Bible doesn't even mention So it's the age of grace, yes. It's also the time of the Gentiles. But there's another term that the Bible uses over and over again that we need to remember is also the time in which we live, and that is the desolation of Israel.